the reading today is Acts 17, verses 1 to 15. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good. Well, do uh, try and be like the Bereans and um, examine the scriptures as we look at them together. So if you have it available, then it's a good time to look up Acts 17. I want to begin with a question, that is, how do we communicate the Christian faith today? Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that uh, in the face of possible indifference or even hostility, that we actually change the message. That wouldn't be uh, faithfully communicating the faith that we have received from Christ. Now, I'm thinking more about how we gain an entree into various worldviews that people might have or narratives they use to kind of at least try and make sense of the life they find themselves in. So, for example, maybe with eco-warriors, we might start with the fact that Christian teaching, um, that in that we have been mandated by God to do two things in response to our gracious creator's gift of creation. We are meant to be the stewards, the managers of this earth on his behalf. 
And we are meant to multiply in order to create people who also can have uh, a relationship with God himself. Without us, God can't have any more people to be related to. Or if you take the poor and the marginalized, we remind ourselves that the Christian God has a heart for the widow and the orphan and for the stranger in the land away from home, for those who are in particular positions of hardship through no fault of their own. And these give us entry points to show how an aspect of Christianity makes sense in regard to something a neighbour or a friend may well be concerned about or values. And the subject may give us traction in the conversation. And they may start to think that if Christianity makes sense in an area that I think is important, then maybe it makes sense on all the other parts which I have yet to really quite work out what I'm doing here, the whole of my life. Well, the Apostle Paul was the master of illustrating how to communicate the same gospel to different audiences. And in Acts chapter 17, there he faces two groups who he approaches very differently. In Thessalonica and Berea, he goes first to the Jewish synagogues and his audience already has the backstory of the Old Testament and even some of the fringe God-fearers would probably have a better appreciation of it than many of us today. But then in the second half of Acts 17, Paul is in Athens and we'll look at that next week and he takes a very different approach to the Jews in Thessalonica and Berea. In all cases, he does end up leading to the climax where he presents them with the gospel. So let's have a look at things and uh, we'll find that there is, first of all, a very familiar outline. There is a pattern that he follows both at Thessalonica and Berea as he'd done so before on his first missionary journey. Remember, Paul's ultimate aim is to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome from its Jewish centre to the Gentile centre of the known world. He travels along the principal trade routes, whether by land or by sea, and when he arrives at a particular place, he looks to go and find a Jewish synagogue where members of the Jewish diaspora have settled. And he joins them on the Sabbath, and he is said to explain, reason, prove, and hopefully people there are, we read, persuaded and join Paul and his companions in the Christian faith. There is a diverse response, of course. Some of it is positive and they receive the message. Others, it's negative and they want to be rid of the messengers and their message. And sooner or later, willingly or unwillingly, Paul and his team move on to repeat the same pattern again. So let's have a look at Thessalonica, which is Greece's second city today after Athens. It's a strategically important place then and now. It has a harbour, it's the centre of the North Aegean seafaring commerce, and it's a main road, east, west and north. Well, you can't go south, it's in the sea. But it goes north as well as east and west. It's a trade route between really, Greece, Turkey, and beyond. And then he goes to the synagogue, we read, as his custom was, 
And the people there were expected, if they were Jews, who would have been looking for their Messiah, to have embraced the Jesus that they hear Paul teaching them about. And it said, Paul is there for three Sabbaths. That's two weeks and a day. Which actually, when I wrote this, I thought, that's what I've got left. And I should have thought of a sad emoji to project out. But I don't know about you, not only do I not normally think of emojis, the only ones I use are the clap, clap and the pray, because they're obvious. The rest I find ambiguous, and I'd hate to be misunderstood. So, anyway, um, but we do know when we read his letters to the Thessalonians that he obviously stayed more than just a fortnight. He moved on simply to the God-fearing and then to the Gentiles. So his synagogue visit, or mission, to the Jews was short, and then he moves on to the Gentiles for a bit longer. He is said to have reasoned with them from the scriptures, the second half of verse 2, which would, of course, have been the Old Testament. And the version they probably used was the Greek translation of it, the Septuagint, because it was the work of 70 scholars. And he starts on common ground, ground which is shared by both Christians and Jews. And in verse 3, Paul is said to be explaining or opening up and proving that the Christ, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, had or it was necessary or must that that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And Paul's conclusion is that this Jesus from Nazareth, that he's proclaiming, the word is used of important announcements in the ancient world, is in fact the Christ. Well, let's see how he's using the Old Testament to achieve that conclusion with them. The Old Testament is their common ground. The Jews would recognize its authority and so if it could be demonstrated that what the Old Testament said is something that they hadn't realized, but as obedient Jews, if they find it, they are honor-bound to accept it, even if they don't like it. And there wasn't just common ground in recognizing the authority of the Old Testament. There was common ground in their method of interpretation. The word translated reasoned in verse 3 can be translated opening up. And the word translating proving um, can also be translated as setting before or placing alongside. So what Paul was doing, his method, which they would recognize, Paul was taking passages from the Old Testament which spoke about the coming Messiah and what he would do. And then next to, if you like, these passages from the Old Testament, he is saying, this is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus was. He's come, in other words. So he's setting the fulfillment alongside the prediction. In other words, this is that. This, what Jesus said and did, and who he was, is that 
which the Old Testament scriptures, hundreds of years before, predicted would happen. So there are literally hundreds, I think from memory, there's something like about 700 parts of you know, verses or so in the Old Testament which are thought to be indicative about the Messiah and what he would do. And Paul is saying Jesus fulfills those things. Examine it for yourselves. Now Psalm 110 verse 1 is one of the most frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's a psalm of David and a psalm probably means that it is a poem that is accompanied. So, uh, verse 1, it is Jesus who actually points out that this psalm is one that refers to the Messiah and that the Messiah is one who will be greater than King David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Matthew in his gospel records Jesus interacting with the Jews over this particular verse. It's a model that Paul is obviously following. Um, uh, Matthew 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, though the Jews at the time saw in Psalm 110 um, predictions of the Messiah, they saw the Messiah in purely human terms, as a simply physical descendant of David. And so in their thinking, one who's derived from David, and so inferior to David. Jesus' question, based on his careful understanding of this psalm, revealed that greater than David was one who was going to come. The Messiah would be more than David. But why does this Messiah have to suffer? Well, an honest Jew, on self-examination, like us, I think, would realise that, uh, try as he might, he can't not sin. He fails to live up to the law or to God's standards. And the law condemns him. And he also knew that the whole sacrificial system, where the death of an animal is taking the place, that that animal is receiving the punishment of death, that this human being sin deserved. He knew that didn't work. How could an animal's life be of the same worth, the same value in the eyes of God who has created human beings uniquely in his image? And so he would have reflected maybe that if God, who is judge, has to punish rebellious wrongdoing to uphold his justice, 
And yet if he wants to somehow forgive us, how is he going to be able to do it? He knows that sinful human beings need some human substitute to take their place. But no other human being is perfect. So humans face the possibility of punishment by death and exclusion from the presence of a holy God. Unless, that is, a perfect substitute can be found, one who can take our place. Well, to be perfect, you would need to be divine. But to represent us, you would need to be human. And that is, of course, where the divine human takes form. And we ask ourselves, who fits that person's specification? And the answer is the divine man, Jesus. He suffers the punishment our sins deserve. He dies in our place. As the song goes, God's justice is satisfied. The great redeeming work is done. There's an early Christian record of a dialogue between Justin Martyr and Trypho, a Jew, where we find that the matter is up for discussion between the Christian and the Jew. And we read how it is argued and settled entirely on the basis of the scriptures, the Old Testament. Do they or do they not back up the claims that Christians are putting forward? Is what scripture says understood now in the light of what Christ did? Does it show that he is who the Old Testament prophets predicted would come and has come? So Trypho, after a long discussion with Justin and having the scriptures explained to him, concedes, he says, it is quite clear that the scriptures announce that Christ had to suffer. We know he should suffer and be led as a lamb. The other question is, why must Christ be raised from the dead? Well, two reasons at least. The first one is a sense of justice, and God is nothing if he isn't just. Christ being perfect did not deserve to die. And so by his resurrection from the dead, what is God saying? He is vindicating this Jesus. What's the other reason why he must rise? Well, it is to provide evidence. Evidence that his, that his uh, dead body was brought back to life, then transformed into a glorified body, as it had been at the Mount of Transfiguration, and as it is now. That's, it provides evidence for that. And it's God's way of also validating that that transaction that took place on the cross worked and God approved of it. It's also an indication, the resurrection, as the kind of quality of life that we will have for eternity. A human form, but a perfected one that doesn't suffer from the limitations that we suffer from. Now, we've only had time just to skim the surface of how the Old Testament predicts what the New Testament records. 
that the Messiah has arrived in Jesus. Paul had longer, and they, being Jews, knew the Old Testament well. So Paul could sum up to them, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So remember the pattern. He went to the synagogue first. He explains what the Old Testament said long ago about the Messiah. And he says it's come true. The Messiah has come. He is Jesus. And there are diverse responses. We read verse 4. For some, the penny drops, the light bulb moment has occurred. And some are persuaded, we read. They realize it's true. And they join Paul and Silas. We've seen through COVID the value of Christian fellowship, something that we miss when we were first all locked down. Or was it locked up? And they not only believe, but they belong and they become the ecclesia, the called out ones, and they form the people of God. And Luke also reports that a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women also are persuaded. And among them are Aristarchus and Secundus. The former, later at the end of Acts, is imprisoned along with Paul. But alongside this positive response, there is a negative one. Some Jews, motivated, Luke says, by jealousy, reacted negatively and with hostility. They didn't or couldn't engage in further debate. In fact, they wanted the whole discussion closed down, silenced. So they recruited a renter mob Argument weak, shout louder is a term that comes to mind. They want to no-platform Paul and Silas. Don't give them a chance to share their news. Censor them, in other words. They can't find Paul and Silas, so they go for Jason, who had offered them hospitality when they arrived in the place. And they drag Jason before the city magistrates, who are correctly called polytarchs here, Sometimes they're called Asiarchs, but Luke always gets which one, which one it is in which place. Now notice how disingenuous the Jews are. Their accusation presented here is that Paul and co. are causing trouble and being politically seditious. This was a civil charge. But that's not what originally motivated them, was it? They were jealous, Luke says. They were jealous because they feared that as they saw people responding to Christ, the numbers in their synagogue would drop, they themselves would lose their prestige and power. They knew that if they um, complained about their religious differences, whether Jesus was the Messiah or not, the Roman authorities couldn't care less. They're not interested in little kind of petty religious differences seen from their perspective. But if it's a political charge, an accusation, well then they are on the alert. Their accusation was, verse 7, that they are defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. Now the word for trouble here is used in Acts 21.30 of an Egyptian terrorist 
it's a word with revolutionary overtones and no doubt they chose it deliberately to cause the maximum alarm for those for whom all this Christian stuff was new there appears to be at least a prime facie case to answer the title you see King Basileus used of Jesus was also used by the Greeks for Caesar and the word parousia the time in the future when the Lord Jesus will come to judge all people who've ever lived was also the word for when the Emperor comes to visit this sounded like treason an accusation that could prove fatal not just for Jason and Paul but also for the inhabitants of that town if it got back to Rome and if Rome took such an accusation seriously the Roman Empire at that time was massive it stretched all the way from Britannia where we are to Nubia which is southern Egypt it went even into kind of Iraq today as well as into sort of uh, northern and eastern Europe it was massive but they had a comparatively small standing army and they relied on the fear and the power of that army when it got itself organized for example in 132 the Jews revolted against the Romans again they had a messianic pretender called Simon Bar Kokhba and initially the Romans faced defeats the ninth legion that had played a part in conquering Britain actually got decimated probably at that time but two years later when Emperor Hadrian who'd been disturbed building his wall managed to amass six legions and all their auxiliary troops together a hundred thousand men there was payback and without mercy 200,000 Jews were killed or enslaved and another 300,000 died of famine or disease at their last stand at Betar the Romans were ruthless the Jewish Talmud reports that the number of Jewish dead was enormous and that the Romans quote went on killing until their horses were submerged in blood to their nostrils their leaders were tortured to death by various means flayed with iron combs having their skin slowly pulled off of their body burned at the stake but with a wet wool tied around them so as to prolong the agony you can see they were scared stiff of what the Romans might do if they thought a particular place was in danger of rebelling so they were thrown into turmoil but fortunately these polytarchs these uh, local officials made a rather sane judgment probably because they hadn't got the culprits Paul and Silas before them and probably because they were smart enough to think this lot don't even have a sword between them they're not any great danger so they made Jason pay a bail bond which basically probably meant that if Paul pitches up again Jason loses his money so at that point Paul and Silas escape they head 50 miles away to Berea which we'll look at much more briefly 
Now, where they follow their, their familiar pattern, they go to the synagogue. Actually, the presence of Jews in Berea is attested by a couple of uh, inscriptions found within the last hundred years, that there were Jews in that city at that time. And they explain Jesus was the Messiah, as predicted in the Old Testament. There is again a diverse response, and Paul then moves on to the next place. Now, they are more noble, he says, which... Uh, by what he means that they were more open-minded and fair and thoughtful. Thoughtful in the sense of, you know, taking this seriously and giving it careful examination. And he reports that these noble people received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. It does worry me when people listen to, if you like, expository sermons and they don't have access to a Bible in front of them because we who do it can spin you any old nonsense. If you can't check it, you may swallow it, which would be to your detriment. However, if you can check it and you point out that we're wrong, you have done us a favour because we're then not going down the wrong path. I think you probably picked up that in the synagogues their custom was, was, was to expound the scriptures, to explain to the rest of the members what it actually meant. Bible exposition, we might call it. That doesn't mean to say there isn't a case for what you might call a thematic sermon or talk where you take an issue and that requires you to take, to draw information from different parts of the Bible to make up a complete picture. But even those snippets here and there you need to be explained how they, what they mean and how they relate to the issue that you're addressing. And so uh, we need to be like the Bereans who examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And the word for examine is a word that was also used in judicial investigation. So you have, for example, remember when Herod questioned Jesus? Well, he was examining him. The Sanhedrin is said to examine Peter and John. The governor Felix was examining Paul. And that's what we should do when we are receiving Christian teaching. We are to examine it. Again, there's a diverse response. We have, um, we have this time many, verse 12, of the Jews believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But there was also an adverse response from jealous Jews from Thessalonica who'd heard that Paul had decamped to Berea and they legged it 50 miles to again cause trouble by stirring up a mob. Now note their methods. Did these Jews turn up and get their scriptures out? Did they listen to what uh, Jesus had done? Did they engage in any careful examination or rational discussion or questioning? Was their starting point that the truth is confirmed if it's in accordance with the scriptures, no matter what they might find there? Well, no. As in Thessalonica, verse 13, they were agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Today, there is, of course, as we can easily see, too much mob influence, whether it's on social media or whether it's by demonstration. What's needed is rational, evidence-based debate. Without it, 
the mob rules, or rather, their leaders come to rule, who are often very intolerant, if not tyrannical. And many a good cause can get hijacked by those with other motives. Their motives are to see the, the destabilization of society, particularly by attacking the, the family, so that society will become chaotic and destabilized, which is, of course, much easier for them in times of crisis to take over. Well, it's time for Paul to escape. This time he goes to Athens, where he'll later be joined by Timothy and Silas. So remember what we've learned from Paul and his visits to Thessalonica and to Berea, that scripture is the supreme authority. That settles matters. Neither Paul nor the Bereans use scripture in any kind of superficial, unintelligent, proof-texting way. Rather, Paul argued out of scripture and the Bereans examined it to see whether what Paul said was cogent. Paul welcomed and he encouraged a thoughtful response. John Stott comments, Paul believed in doctrine. His, method, his message, in other words, had theological content. It said things about God. But it was not indoctrination, which is tyrannical instruction demanding uncritical acceptance. And so should we. Amen.